This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, Academy Award-winning crimes, I share stories of the darker side of the Academy Awards. We're just one week away from the live telecast of the 90th Academy Awards ceremony. In 90 years, you can be sure that there have been many memorable moments. In 1939, Hattie McDaniel made history by becoming the first African-American to win an Oscar. She received the award for Best Supporting Actress for her portrayal of Mammy in Gone with the Wind. In 1972, Marlon Brando refused his Best Actor award, instead sending Sachin Littlefeather to the stage in his place, who read a prepared statement condemning the government's treatment of Native Americans. Then there were red carpet moments with some very memorable gowns, like Cher's barely-there black feathered number in 1986, or Bjork's swan-inspired frock in 2001. But this is a crime podcast, so of course, I had to find some true crime-related Academy Award stories to share with you. In this final chapter, I will tell you about a few more crimes related to the Oscars, some directly, some indirectly. First up, I will tell you stories of stolen Oscars. These coveted statuettes are not expensive items, costing only about $400 a piece to produce, but they are valuable once they're presented to the recipients. Some can go for upwards of half a million dollars at auction, an amount someone once paid to own Vivian Lee's Best Actress Oscar for Gone with the Wind. The highest amount ever paid for an Oscar was $1,542,500. When David O. Selznick's Best Director Oscar for Gone with the Wind was purchased by Michael Jackson in 1999. I'll tell you about some of the more interesting and bizarre of these stolen Oscar stories. As well, I've still got a couple of Oscar-related murders to share with you that you might not have heard of before. This is Chapter 4, Stolen Oscars, Streakers, and Deadly Deeds. If you've ever watched the Academy Awards... It can be exciting, inspiring, and sometimes touching to see the winners receive their gold statuettes. Some raise it high over their heads or make a statement like, this is for you, mom, and some even kiss it. So it might surprise you to know that many Academy Award winners have eventually misplaced, meaning lost, their Oscars. Angelina Jolie won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress in Girl Interrupted in 2000. She decided to honor her mother, Marceline Bertrand, by giving her the statuette. Bertrand died in 2007, and it's believed that it was packed up with the rest of her belongings after her death. Jolie says that it's, quote, not actually lost. It's just that no one knows exactly where it is right now. Um, isn't that what lost means? Marlon Brando lost not one, but two of his Oscars. I don't know what happened to the Oscar they gave me for On the Waterfront, he wrote in his autobiography. Somewhere in the passage of time, it disappeared. He also doesn't know what happened to the Oscar that he had Miss Littlefeather accept for him, as I mentioned in the intro. If he ever received it, he said, he doesn't know what he did with it. Colin Firth may or may not have left his Oscar in a bathroom stall. You've probably seen the photos of the winners taking their statuettes with them to make the rounds at the Oscar after parties. Firth, a bathroom attendant reported, left his Oscar sitting on top of a toilet tank. Perhaps he had had a few martinis, and it just slipped his mind. Who hasn't been there? 
However, Firth and his representative both say this never happened. You have to decide who you believe. It's a funny story anyway. But in total, at least 70 Oscars have been stolen from their recipients since 1929, when the first prizes were awarded. Here are a few of the more interesting stories. Before Olympia Dukakis won Best Supporting Actress for Moonstruck in 1988, she was a struggling stage actress for many years. At the age of 56, Moonstruck was her big break, and she totally killed it, playing opposite Cher as her mother, Rose Castorini. On a personal note, Moonstruck is one of my favorite movies of all time. Every actor in that movie is so perfect, and it's just a wonderful, simple story with great heart. Anyway, Dukakis says her life totally changed after winning the Oscar. She got steady work in feature films like Steel Magnolias, The Look Who's Talking franchise, and Mr. Holland's Opus, and she continues to work in film and television to this day. So when she returned home on May 19, 1989, and found it gone, she was understandably upset. She kept the statuette in the kitchen of her home in Montclair, New Jersey. A burglar had broken in and taken it. It was the only thing missing from the home. The plaque with her name inscribed on it had been unscrewed from the base and left behind. Her son received a call in the days that followed, offering to sell the Oscar back. The police were contacted, and they tried to set up a trap to catch the thief, but he never showed up for the scheduled meeting. The statuette was never found. However, Olympia called the Academy to ask if she could get a replacement. Yes, she could, they told her, for $78. She paid for the replacement. The next one was not technically stolen, but it's such a touching story that I had to share it. Lyle Wheeler was an Academy Award-winning art director who worked on many films, including Gone with the Wind, The King and I, and The Diary of Anne Frank. Over the years, he won a total of five Oscars for his work. But by 1986, he had fallen on hard times and lost his home. He ended up putting many of his possessions in a storage facility. Later that year, the items in the storage unit were auctioned off when he was unable to pay the bill. A couple in California purchased some of the boxes at the auction for $20 each. Inside one of the boxes, they found the five Oscars. They contacted a memorabilia expert in Hollywood to put them up for sale. Wheeler's family found out about this and contacted the couple begging them to return the Oscars to Lyle Wheeler. However, they refused to do so and proceeded to put them up for auction. The Oscar that he won for his work on The Diary of Anne Frank sold for over $20,000. The man who purchased it, William Kaiser, had used his life savings to buy it in order to return it to Wheeler. Wheeler was reunited with his Oscar at a ceremony held at the Roosevelt Hotel, which was the original location of the first Academy Award ceremony. Wheeler was very grateful and cried upon seeing it again. He died the following year. Whoopi Goldberg was awarded the Best Supporting Actress Award for her role in the movie Ghost in 1991. In 2002, she shipped the statuette back to the Academy to have it cleaned and replated. The Academy, in turn, sent it off to the Chicago firm, R.S. Owens, the company who makes the statuettes, for repair. However, when the box arrived in Chicago, it was empty. Apparently, on its way through the Ontario-California airport, as it was being shipped, someone opened up the box and removed the Oscar before resealing it and sending it on its way. The thief must have had second thoughts about either keeping it or selling it, because soon afterwards, 
a security guard found it in an airport garbage can. After it was returned to her, uncleaned, Whoopi Goldberg said, Oscar will never leave my house again. Then there was the Oscar stolen for revenge. A special Academy Award was presented to child actor Margaret O'Brien in 1945 when she was seven years old. In 1954, the O'Brien's housekeeper took the Oscar and two other awards home with her to polish, which she had often done. But the housekeeper did not return to work for the O'Brien's for some reason. Margaret's mother then called and fired her. The housekeeper did not return the Oscar, and the family didn't realize it was missing. Shortly thereafter, Mrs. O'Brien died, and it was only after her mother's death that Margaret realized her awards were missing. She called the housekeeper's phone number to track them down, but the phone number was no longer in service. The family then surmised that the housekeeper certainly knew she should have returned the awards, but as she had been fired by Mrs. O'Brien, she probably kept it out of spite. Fast forward to 40 years later. A man searching for sports memorabilia at a Pasadena, California flea market saw the statuette for sale. He and a friend purchased it for $500, planning to resell it at an upcoming memorabilia auction. The Academy somehow found out about the auction and contacted the two gentlemen who had found it, asking for it to be returned to O'Brien. They were happy to do so. They didn't want any money in return, but instead simply requested that a photo be taken of them handing the Oscar over to the actress. They said it would give them bragging rights to have presented an Oscar. They were given their request. As well, the Academy rewarded them each with two tickets to the next Academy Awards ceremony. Finally, in 2000, an entire shipment of Oscar statuettes went missing. On March 2, 2000, 55 Oscars were en route to the Academy in Beverly Hills. The pallet of gold-plated statues held 10 packing cases weighing a total of 500 pounds. At 3 a.m., they arrived at the Roadway Express Terminal in Bell, California, where they were to be loaded onto a truck for delivery later that morning. But someone working on the docks noticed the tag on the pellet that marked it as designated for the Motion Picture Academy. It must have been too tempting to resist, so some person or persons opened up one of the boxes. Workers then allegedly took pictures of themselves holding the Oscars. It's unknown whether it was either a mistake or deliberate, but the pellet was then loaded onto a truck, heading not to Beverly Hills, but to Hawthorne, California. From there, the Oscars vanished from the transportation company's tracking system. When they didn't arrive as scheduled, a trace was put on the shipment. Roadway officials went on a thorough and frantic search of every dock and truck in its California service centers, but to no avail. The Oscars were gone. Five days after they disappeared, the Academy officials were informed that the Oscars could not be found. It was only 13 days until the 72nd Annual Awards Ceremony. A rush order was placed to R.S. Owens and Company to mold and cast 55 more Oscar statuettes. It was very unlikely they could be completed in time. Nevertheless, they had to try. 20 factory workers worked around the clock for several days to try and complete the order in time. But a few days later, 61-year-old Willie Fulgier, a down-on-his-luck Los Angeles resident, who eked out a living scrounging for junk to sell, jumped into a dumpster behind a food-for-less supermarket and began opening boxes to see if there was anything of value. Well, he must have felt like Charlie Bucket when he found the golden ticket in the Willy Wonka bar because, within moments, he caught the glint of something shiny and metallic, gold, 
he saw a little gold man and then dozens of little gold men, most still in their cases. They were in and around the dumpster. He thought at first they were cheap replicas, toys of Oscar statuettes. But when he lifted one, it was heavy. He piled the boxes into the trunk of his car and drove home. Once there, he showed them to his son, who quickly did an internet search. They discovered that Roadway was offering a $50,000 reward for the return of the Oscars. Dad, Full Gear's son exclaimed, you just found 50 grand. Full Gear first called the television news and then the cops. Because, he explained, quote, a black man with that kind of stuff is automatically guilty. By that night, the discovery of the stolen Oscars was big news, and Fulgear was the man of the hour. Fulgear was ready to collect his 50K and go home, and Roadway was happy to give it to him. But first, the police interrogated him for hours. They even requested a polygraph, which Fulgear agreed to. He passed with no problem. When the cops couldn't find any reason to charge him with the theft, they released him. He was awarded the $50,000 and given two tickets to the Oscar ceremony. He was given two upfront seats, a free tuxedo, and a car to chauffeur him to the theater. With his reward, Fulgear first purchased a car, a Lexus, for $17,000. He wanted it to return to his home state of Mississippi. He was planning to build a house there. He kept the rest of the almost $40,000 in cash in a safe in his house while he drove to Mississippi to find property to purchase. But when he returned home a month later, his home had been broken into and ransacked. The safe and the money was gone. The police were still skeptical of Fulgear's story. They discovered that his half-brother, a man named John Willie Harris, was suspected of being involved in the theft. A roadway worker named Larry Ledent confessed to taking the Oscars from the warehouse in Hawthorne. Ledent then says he took them to Harris's house to hide them. Harris wanted no part of it, Ledent said, and told him to get rid of them. He claimed that he later dumped them. This, they suspected, was how Fulgear knew where to find the statuettes. Perhaps, they thought, Harris or Ledent grew angry at Fulgear's celebrity and jealous that he received the reward. Maybe they had broken into the house and stolen the money. However, Fulgear remained insistent that he had simply found the Oscars by accident and had no involvement in their theft. The LAPD never charged Fulgear with any crime. But a year after his amazing find, he was once again broke and sick with ulcers. He said he was stressed by the police's harassment of him, the lies being told about him in the media, and the public's new skepticism concerning his involvement in the missing Oscars. The man who once stood in front of TV cameras and happily joked that he had more Oscars than any of the movie stars would now say, Man, I wish I'd never even seen them Oscars. Just recently, however, another twist came to light in this case. The company who made a mad scramble to try and manufacture enough statuettes to replace the missing ones says it may not have been necessary to do so at all. According to a February 2017 article in The Hollywood Reporter, written by Scott Johnson, the Academy always keeps an inventory of statuettes on hand, but because the number of recipients varies each year, a shortfall is sometimes possible. But what was stolen in March 2000 were actually the Oscars for the next year's ceremony. A spokesperson for R.S. Owens said, they absolutely under no circumstances could run the risk of not having statuettes. As well, the Oscars that Fulgear found were never handed out. They were destroyed. The Academy would not have given out stolen Oscars. Bad luck, perhaps?
Some memorable events have happened at the Oscars due to it being a live telecast. Who can forget Jennifer Lawrence falling on the steps on her way to the stage to accept her award in 2013? Or John Travolta's seriously mangling of Adina Menzel's name in 2015? Adele Dazeem? And most recently, and the biggest gaffe of all, has to be the world-class screw-up that happened just last year when La La Land was announced as the winner of the Best Picture Oscar and moments later had to be corrected. The real winner was Moonlight. But whenever memorable moments from the Oscars are being discussed or written about, invariably the 1974 Academy Award streaker is mentioned. Robert Opel, a freelance photographer posing as a journalist, made his way into the auditorium through a maze of hallways and curtains and stripped off all his clothes. Still undetected, he took to the stage completely naked. Exit stage right, as Snagglepuss would say, you youngsters, just Google it. And could be seen by millions of viewers as he ran behind presenter David Niven. He wore nothing but a wristwatch and flashed a peace sign for the audience. Niven, being English and so unflappable under pressure, is that a stereotype? Probably, but at least it's a positive one. Quickly and coolly remarked, Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, um, that was almost bound to happen. <laughs> but isn't it fascinating that... <laughs> fascinating to think that, that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Besides being a photographer... Opal also worked as a teacher in the Los Angeles school system. He was fired after the Oscars incident. He became somewhat of a celebrity after streaking through the Oscars and parlayed it into a new career. He streaked through an L.A. City Council meeting that was debating a law outlawing nudity on public beaches. He was jailed for that stunt. He even ran for president as the first nudist candidate. I have nothing to hide, he famously joked when he appeared on the Mike Douglas show as part of his campaign. He decided to move away from Los Angeles and relocated to San Francisco. There he continued his photography career and in 1978 opened the art gallery Fay Way Studios, located at 1287 Howard Street. It was San Francisco's first known homoerotic art gallery. At the time, art created by out-gay artists was rarely seen outside of gay bars and clubs. Opal's gallery featured works by such notable artists as Tom of Finland and Robert Maplethorpe. At the time, gay rights and sexual rights were both hot-button issues in the country, even in liberal San Francisco. The murder of Mayor Dan Moscone and gay rights activist Harvey Milk had happened just the year prior. The riot that occurred afterwards in protest of the murderer Dan White's light sentence was still fresh in the minds of the community, and things were still tense between the gay community and the police. But Robert Opal liked to push boundaries to make his message heard. He staged a mock execution of Dan White at San Francisco's UN Plaza during the Gay Freedom Day parade on June 24th. He'd been warned against doing so by the SFPD, as well as by some of his friends, who thought it was too risky during these tense times. The performance went off without a hitch. However, less than two weeks later, on the evening of Sunday, July 9, 1979, Opal was at his studio when two armed men entered the gallery. Two friends of Opal's, Anthony Rogers and Camille O'Grady, were also present. The two men brandished a handgun and a sawed-off shotgun at the trio, demanding drugs and money. Opal was known to sell amphetamines and PCP sometimes, 
However, he didn't have any drugs in the studio that night. Opal stood up to one of the robbers when he threatened him that he would blow his head off. You're going to have to, Opal replied. There's no money here. Rogers and O'Grady had been taken into a back room and held at gunpoint by the second man. They heard the blast from the shotgun and the sound of Opal's body falling to the floor. The robbers soon fled, taking only a camera and $5 cash with them. Opal's friends found him dead, a bullet in his head. Camille O'Grady was also an artist and drew a sketch of the robbers to give to police. The men were soon caught. They were identified as Maurice J. Keenan and Robert Kelly. They were arrested on July 10th. While he awaited trial on the murder charge, Keenan escaped from jail three separate times. He was found and returned each time. He was convicted of murder and given the death sentence, but it was overturned on appeal in 2000. He was then sentenced to life in prison. His accomplice, Robert Kelly, was also given a life sentence. In 2014, art curator Rick Castro and Opal's nephew, Robert Opal, with two Ps, Opal had changed the spelling of his name so as not to upset his very conservative Pennsylvania family, opened an exhibition titled Robert Opal, The Resurrection of Fayway Studios at a gallery in Hollywood. It featured original artworks, posters, and memorabilia from the original Fayway Studios. Opal's nephew also directed a documentary titled Uncle Bob about the life and death of Robert Opal. It features interviews with John Waters, Divine, and other San Francisco-based friends and celebrities who knew Opal during his time in the city and when he was the curator of Fayway Studios. The filmmaker tried to get interviews with the two men who were responsible for his uncle's murder to include in the documentary, but he was denied access to them by prison authorities. Finally, we come to the story of the Oscar-winning songwriter whose son was accused of a terrible crime, the murder of a young fashion designer. He himself would face his own serious charges at the same time his son was on trial for murder. Sylvie Cachet was brought up in a well-to-do neighborhood in McLean, Virginia. Her father was a surgeon and her mother was an artist. They had emigrated to the U.S. from Peru and taught their daughter that even though she was the daughter of privilege, she should work hard to make her dreams come true like they had done. Sylvie was ambitious and hardworking. She wanted to be a fashion designer, and her goal had always been to eventually have her own clothing line. She did well in school and then went on to college to study fashion design. Right out of college, she was hired as an intern for designer Mark Jacobs' company. Her combination of talent, hard work, and enthusiasm helped her rise through the ranks quickly. She was then hired by Tommy Hilfiger before landing at Victoria's Secret. It was there that she began designing swimwear. By the age of 29, she was ready to launch her own line. She met with investors to get seed money, but she didn't expect the interest in her fledgling business to be so great. She was able to start her swimwear line that she named Sela with $1 million in funding from investors. She got to work right away on a line of bikinis and swimwear and quickly received orders from major retailers like Barney's and Anthropology. Magazines like Elle and Vogue featured articles about the talented and beautiful Peruvian-American, whose swimwear was a favorite of celebrities. One of her designs was even featured in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition, a coveted spot for swimwear designers. Sylvie was young and successful and living in one of the most exciting cities in the world, New York. She was rubbing shoulders with celebrities, captains of industry, and celebrated artists. 
The Soho House Hotel was a place frequented by the young and creative set who were the movers and shakers in Manhattan. It was known as a great place to be seen, network, and set deals into motion. It was located in the trendy meatpacking district near high-end designer shops, restaurants, and nightclubs. But not just anyone could stay at the Soho House Hotel. You had to be a private club member in order to reserve a room. Sylvie purchased a membership and spent time working and socializing at Soho House. She began dating one of her photographers, and they became engaged. Everything was going wonderfully for her, until the recession hit in 2008. Seemingly overnight, clients began canceling their orders. Many businesses began to close their doors, and Sylvie was left with a large amount of inventory left unsold. Because she no longer had the orders to show investors, they began to back out. She lost her business and fell into a depression. Her relationship fell apart, and she and her fiancé broke up. Sylvie rarely left the small apartment she had been forced to move into. Friends and family tried to get her to cheer up and get out more, but she holed up alone for almost a year. The only bright spot in her life at that time were her two little dogs, Lola and Pepper. Sylvie longed for marriage and a family, but for now, her two dogs were her children. Finally, she knew she had to get moving again and began applying for jobs. She was hired as a designer for Ann Cole Swimwear. She was 32 years old and felt like she was starting over. Her life now solely consisted of work and her dogs. Friends kept trying to encourage her to go out and have fun, but she would put them off, preferring to stay home snuggling with Lola and Pepper. She was on medication for depression and anxiety and took prescription pills to help her sleep as well. In the spring of 2010, she finally agreed to attend a party with a friend. It was there that she met 23-year-old Nicholas Brooks. Brooks was almost 10 years her junior. He was nice-looking and charming, but Sylvie probably wouldn't have paid as much attention to the younger man until he told her he might be interested in investing in her. Sylvie's goal was still to relaunch Sela. When Brooks asked her about herself, she told him she was a designer and that she was looking for investors for the relaunch of her swimwear line. Brooks, I'm sure, was attracted to the beautiful Sylvie. But what he told her was not just a line to get her to keep talking to him. He actually did come from a wealthy family and was what is sometimes called a trust fund baby. Nicholas Brooks' father was Joseph Brooks, an award-winning songwriter. In 1978, he won the Academy Award for the best original song, You Light Up My Life. Brooks not only wrote the song that would become a number one hit for singer Debbie Boone in 1977, but he also wrote and directed the movie by the same name. The movie and song were hugely popular. Joseph Brooks became wealthy off of song royalties. He'd written several hit songs, including theme songs for major motion pictures and advertising jingles. His son Nicholas and daughter Amanda were heirs to his fortune and had grown up wealthy and privileged. Now Nicholas told Sylvie that he had money to invest and also connections to other wealthy people who might be potential investors as well. Sylvie gave him her card and told him to contact her to talk about it. The next day, Nicholas called and they made plans to get together. Sylvie told him rather than going out to dinner, perhaps they could just go for a walk. Guys, when a girl says, let's just take a walk, it means I'm trying to keep this casual. I'm not that into you. You're welcome. Sylvie brought her dogs along. However, just as they began walking, one of her dogs, Pepper, ran off into the street and was struck by a car. Sylvie was panicked 
and Nicholas sprang into action. He scooped up the injured dog and hailed a cab, directing it to take them to the nearest emergency vet. Sylvie was beside herself. Nicholas waited with her, comforting her while the vet tried to save Pepper. But it was no use. Sylvie was devastated. Sylvie's friends would later say that it was because Nicholas was there in her hour of need that she continued to see him. They wondered if she would have become so attached to him if they had not shared that terrible day together. In any case, Sylvie and Nicholas became a couple, and by the beginning of that summer, Nicholas was staying at Sylvie's apartment more often than at his own place. Nicholas shared his life story with his new girlfriend. He told her that while he grew up wealthy, his father was harsh and abusive to him since he was just a little boy. His father was also cruel to his mother and sister. Joseph Brooks expected his family to obey him completely or else he would become physically violent. He would often threaten them that he would disinherit them and leave them penniless if they went against his wishes. When Nick was just six years old, his parents divorced. Some say that his mother returned to England to get away from her abusive husband. But later, Nick's lawyer would claim that Joseph had kidnapped his children, hiding them from their mother. However it happened, Joseph gained custody of his children in the early 1990s. He forbid his children from speaking to or even mentioning their mother. Or once again, he threatened them with physical punishment and disinheritance. Nicholas's sister Amanda missed her mother terribly and got in touch with her. When her father found out, he kicked her out of the house, and Amanda went to live with her mother. Nicholas was left alone with Joseph. Joseph told his son that he would cut him off from any financial support if he ever saw his mother or sister again. He was only seven years old. He did not see them again for 14 years. Hearing how terrible Nick's young life was, Sylvia's heart went out to him. She was always a nurturer and thought she could help him by giving him the love and affection he'd been deprived of. Nicholas did finally get back in touch with his mother and sister just a couple of years before he met Sylvie. He eventually confessed to his father that he had been reunited with them. Joseph was furious. He cut off most of the money Nicholas had access to and took away his credit cards. He left Nicholas with just a small allowance that he doled out each month. When Nicholas met Sylvie, he was pretty close to being broke and obviously didn't have any money to invest in her business. But by that time, Sylvie thought she was in love and that no longer mattered to her. She'd find another way to fund her business. She was sure of it. The problem was, as Sylvie soon discovered, that Nicholas had never held a job or earned his own way in his life. This was very much in contrast with Sylvie's life. Sylvie had to get up every morning to go to her job. She would then come home to work on her own designs and try to set up meetings with investors who might help her relaunch Sela. Increasingly, she found herself paying for everything and was the only one in the relationship holding down a job. By the fall of that year, just a few months into their relationship, Sylvie began to grow irritated with her boyfriend. She would come home from a hard day at work to find Nicholas still in bed. The house would be a mess and would reek of marijuana. Nicholas had a daily marijuana habit, and Sylvie thought that this just made him even less motivated to get up and find a job. It was fairly obvious that Sylvie was trying to give her boyfriend a chance, but was getting more frustrated with him as the days and weeks went on. Later, a list of expectations she wrote out for Nick was found. The list ticked off several requirements that Sylvie laid out for her unmotivated boyfriend, including get a job, clean up after yourself, cut down on smoking pot and random, quote, over-drinking and drug use, 
open the blinds during the daytime hours, get out of bed before 10 a.m., and stick to the things you say you will do. At the end of the list, she wrote, if you can't do all these things, then this likely won't work. She broke up with him several times, but Nicholas somehow would find a way to charm her and win her back. It was a roller coaster relationship until late November, just before the long Thanksgiving weekend. Sylvie was fed up. Nicholas would promise to change, but nothing ever did. She told him that they should take a break over that weekend, but he kept trying to get her to change her mind. On November 22nd, she sent him the following text. I can't do all this up and down. It's not healthy for me, and it's really exhausting. He kept trying to get her to spend time with him over the holiday, but she told him it wasn't going to happen. He should spend the weekend visiting his dad, she said. Friends of Sylvie's say she reported to them that Nicholas became verbally abusive and even threatened to kill her if she didn't agree to get back together with him. The couple continued to argue, but Sylvie was at the end of her patience, especially when she found out he'd stolen from her and cheated on her during their relationship. On December 8th, she sent him the following email. The subject line read, Fuck you. Nick, for the past six months, I have supported you financially and emotionally. The fact that you cheated on me makes me sick, and you will fucking pay. I am speaking with the credit card company and the police, and I'm going to tell them that I never allowed you to use my card. I don't care. Have fun in jail. Sylvie. However, that night, Nicholas was back at Sylvie's apartment. It's possible, her friends say, that he told her he had nowhere to go and she felt sorry for him and allowed him to stay at her place. No matter how frustrated or angry she was with him, Sylvie had a big heart, they said. But they also thought that Sylvie might have agreed to see him again because, as she'd once told her friend, we have crazy chemistry, but way too crazy. So that night, Nick was at Sylvie's. When she fell asleep, he said, he went into the bathroom to take a shower. When he emerged, a small fire had started in the bed from a fallen candle. The room began to fill with smoke, and Sylvie was still asleep, having already taken a sleeping pill. She had to be at work early in the morning and wanted to fall asleep quickly. He woke her and the fire was put out, but the room reeked of smoke and the mattress was burned. A small portion of Sylvie's hair had also been burned, and she was angry. She told Nicholas to call the Soho House Hotel, just a few blocks away, and ask if they had a room available. They did, and Sylvie and Nick quickly packed up, taking Sylvie's dog Lola and an unburnt pillow from the bed before they left for the hotel. They arrived at Soho House at 12.30 a.m. They checked in at the reception desk, and cameras placed throughout the hotel would capture their movements. Sylvie was taken to the room first, while Nick finished registering at the desk. Sylvie was obviously groggy. She had already taken her sleeping pill earlier. The night desk clerk can be seen helping her as she weaves towards the elevator with her bag. She can also be seen clutching her pillow. Most likely because of her groggy state, as well as her frustration with Nick and the situation, she began complaining to the clerk. He's such a stoner, she told her. I don't know why I'm with him. That idiot ruined a $3,000 bed. This is all that I have left, she said, holding up the pillow. Just then, Nicholas entered the room. The clerk could feel the tension between the couple, so she told them to call the desk if they needed anything else and left the room. Just a few minutes later, at 12.42 a.m., the clerk made a trip past room 20, where Sylvie and Nicholas were staying. She could hear the couple arguing somewhat loudly. 
As she walked down the hall, she wondered if she was going to have to call to tell them to quiet down. But abruptly, she heard the voices stop. She continued back to the desk. Five minutes later, Nicholas called room service to ask for ice to be delivered to the room. But cameras would show him meeting the room service employee in the hallway. They entered the room together, and the employee left less than a minute later. He would later say he hadn't seen anyone else in the room. Cameras would not capture Sylvie again, but that was to be expected. She had told the desk clerk she wanted to get to sleep as she had to be up early for work. Nicholas, however, was seen several times on camera, coming in and out of the room. Finally, at 2.18 a.m., he left the hotel. Eight minutes before he left, occupants in a room below room 20 called the front desk to report water leaking from their ceiling. The night manager arrived to inspect and determined that the water leak must be coming from room 20. He and another employee went upstairs and knocked on the door. No one answered. He used his passkey to get in. He could hear water running inside. It was 2.51 a.m. As he entered the room, he didn't see anyone and went towards the sound of water running in the bathroom. As he approached the tub, he saw the body of Sylvie Cachet submerged in the water. The bathtub faucet was opened up all the way, and the water was overflowing onto the floor. He pulled her from the water and instructed the other employee to call 911. He placed Sylvie on the floor and began performing CPR. She was wearing a black turtleneck sweater and her underwear, but no pants. She still had the Rolex watch her parents had given her for her 25th birthday around her wrist. The manager continued to work on Sylvie until paramedics arrived, but she never regained consciousness. She was pronounced dead at 3.33 a.m. She was 33 years old. The medical examiner would report bruises that looked like finger marks around Sylvie's neck, as well as a cut on her lip, as if someone might have held their hand over her mouth. The medical examiner would determine that she had died of strangulation and drowning. Nicholas Brooks, the other occupant of room 20, was nowhere to be found. Detectives arrived and taped off what they suspected to be a crime scene. Sylvie's body had already been removed when Brooks returned to the hotel at 5.30 a.m. He told detectives that he left the hotel around 2 a.m. to have a drink with a friend. When he was told his girlfriend was dead, he showed very little reaction. Nicholas was taken in for questioning and later that morning was arrested for the murder of Sylvie Cachet. Nicholas Brooks was tried in Manhattan Superior Court. He never confessed to the murder and claimed that Sylvie must have drowned accidentally after taking too many sleeping pills. But the prosecution would say, if she had planned to take a bath, why was she still clothed in her sweater and still wearing an expensive watch? Sylvie's family would report that she never took baths. They said she hated even the idea of taking a bath, thinking they were unsanitary. And an accident didn't explain the bruises around her neck or her cut lip. Brooks also claimed that he had not gone anywhere near the bathtub, but his DNA, mixed with Sylvie's, was found on the rim of the tub. He also claimed that Sylvie told him she was going to take a bath before he left the room, and she was still clothed when he left. But the call about the leaking water was made eight minutes before Brooks was seen on camera leaving the room. The water had to be turned on before he left, most likely when he was trying to stage a scene to 
to make it look like an accidental drowning. He was convicted of second-degree murder and given 25 years to life. And as for the fortune Nicholas Brooks was to inherit, that wouldn't happen either. The year before Nicholas was charged with the murder of Sylvie Cachet, his father, Joseph Brooks, the Oscar-winning songwriter, was accused of sexual assault. By June 2009, several women had come forward, saying that he had lured them to his apartment with the promise of a film audition. Once there, he had either physically attacked or drugged the women before sexually assaulting them. He'd spent a considerable amount of his fortune on lawyers he'd hired to defend him against 127 counts of sexual assault that 30 women said had taken place over a series of five years. But before he could be convicted of even one of the charges, Joseph Brooks took his own life. He wrapped a bag around his head and attached it to a helium tank asphyxiating himself. He was 73 years old. He had never admitted to any of the charges. Four days after his death, his assistant pled guilty to criminal facilitation, confessing that he had helped Brooks lure the women to his home. It's very possible that the following scenario took place in room 20 of the Soho House Hotel on the night Sylvie Cachet died. Things were already tense between the couple. Sylvie had had enough of Nicholas Brooks and wanted to break things off with him. She was angry with him for spending her money, laying around her house all day, and the final straw was that she probably blamed him for the fire in her apartment. She remarked to the desk clerk that he was, quote, such a stoner. Maybe she believed the fire started when he was smoking in or near the bed before she woke up to her bed in flames. Once they got to the hotel room, he might have said or done something that infuriated her further. Maybe he began to light up another joint, or take her credit card from her wallet to get a drink in the lobby. Who knows? Either way, an argument began, overheard by the desk clerk. It's very likely that Sylvie might have told him to get out, that she was done with him and just wanted him out of her life. At this time, Nicholas could have snapped and started to strangle the life out of her. It most likely wasn't planned, but he snapped and became enraged. Perhaps it was the last in a lifetime of rejections, and this infuriated him. His mother had left him behind, and he'd had to weather his father's abuse alone. His sister had been saved, but he might have felt that he'd been sacrificed. His father had ultimately rejected him as well, cutting him off from the money he was dependent on. Sylvie kicking out of her life might have been the last straw for him. Or perhaps, after he'd been cut off from his father's fortune, he saw an easy meal ticket with Sylvie. He also thought he was going to inherit a significant amount of money from his father, who, at the time he met Sylvie, had been increasingly ill. Nicholas talked as if he would come into his fortune soon, so he might have believed that his father wasn't long for this world. But that rug was pulled out from under him when his father was up on rape charges and his inheritance was instead dwindling away to pay lawyer's fees. So perhaps he was desperate. This boy man who'd never learned to provide for himself and had no motivation to work or, quote, be productive as Sylvie had listed as a requirement for him to remain in her life. So instead of putting any effort into his own life or relationship, he took the life of a beautiful, young, talented woman who had tried to love and help him. It was a sad and senseless end to a beautiful and promising life.
Sylvie's family discovered that there were still some money left in the Brooks estate. While he was in jail, Nicholas Brooks received a payout of $132,000 for music royalties for his father's work and was expected to receive $172,000 more. They wanted to make sure he would not receive another red cent, so they filed a civil lawsuit against him for the murder of their daughter. They won a $12.5 million settlement in 2014. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime and for this series. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our marketing social media assistant is Nancy Chen, and our administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>